So good to see you guys. How's everybody doing? You sure? Awesome. Well, hey, to say that we're looking forward to next Sunday is like an understatement, right? We've been praying into this and preparing for this for about eight months or so, and this is the moment. You don't want to miss it. It's going to look different here. There are going to be some new expressions of our life and our vision, so make sure you come with a heart ready to receive all that. And, you know, after that great celebration we're going to have here, we're going to have a ton of fun over at the A.E. Bowers Field. Rumor is that a couple of our pastors are going to have a jousting contest in the bouncy house. So you may want to come and put bets on that one, see who's going to win. And hey, yeah, I really hope we do have a mountain of food here, a mountain of food that we can bless the food bank with. They are in such need at this time of the year. Let's bless them, bring lots of food here for them. Hey, I want to mention something. For those of you who call this home church, just something I want to just um, share with you. Uh, let's be uh, faithful and uh, resilient in the area of stewardship as things get going again this fall. Um, I just want to encourage you to bring God's tithe into the storehouse so that there can be enough resources to do what God is calling us to do. We are uh, moving to a higher level of impact in our city, and that just takes more resources. And we are moving into higher levels of training and equipping and releasing and some of those things we've done by steps of faith. So I'm encouraging you, if you've been busy, maybe you've been traveling for the month of August or so, I, I get that. You're just getting back. Let's catch up on our tithing. Uh, let's sustain what God is doing, and let's be uh, faithful in that area of stewardship. And I'll, I'll trust that you'll pray that through. Hey, I just got a text from my wife a little while ago. Uh, she's at the women's retreat with a whole whack of women that are there, and things are going awesome. Michelle Dwyer is the speaker there. And they're having anointed times of worship together. It's really, really phenomenal. And I just encourage you, pray them through for their final sessions. All right, I want you to turn in your Bibles to a couple of passages. Isaiah chapter 61 at verse 4. And uh, then into Amos chapter 9 beginning at verse 11. And we're in this series called For the City. And we're asking ourselves, you know, what does God have us uh, have in store for us as we position ourselves to reach further into our city? What's he calling us into? Who are we to become? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? And from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God is a God who cares about people, redeeming them through his son Jesus. And he cares about cities. So think about Rome and Nineveh and Ephesus and Corinth and uh, Jerusalem. Think about those cities in the Bible and realize God had intentions for all of those cities. And he even sends people out to different cities of the world to bring good news to them and share the gospel so that people can know the heart of God. I, I love what uh, happened in the life of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He knew that it was all about a city. And can I remind us that when Jesus is coming back, and when he returns to earth, and he is coming back, he's coming back to a city. A city that he ministered in, a city that crucified him, a city where he died on the cross for the sins of the world, a, a city where he was buried, a city where he was resurrected, and from that city he went up into heaven. He's coming back down to that same city called Jerusalem. And we know this also that the end of the age, the ultimate fulfillment of the redemptive activity of God is a city coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, 
It's going to dwell on earth. And it says that God will dwell with people. He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And that street, that new heavenly city, uh, sorry, that heavenly city, it has streets, it has, it has a river, it has trees, it has walls, it has gemstones. It's going to be an incredible experience. So everything in the scripture seems to be pointing us to think about cities. In Luke's gospel, chapter 4, uh, Jesus stood up there in the Nazarene synagogue and he quoted from Isaiah 61, which we're going to look at in a moment. And uh, some scholars call this the Messiah's manifesto. It's when Jesus said, you know, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set prisoners free, and so on. And that manifesto happened. Jesus inaugurated it, and then he's handed it over to us to continue to fulfill. But I want you to notice verse 4 from that great passage in Isaiah 61. It says this, And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So guess what, friends? Since that moment that Jesus says this is fulfilled, he has called us and he's commissioned us to continue on in the same ministry, to set captives free, to see people restored from darkness to light, and to see the restoration of ruined places. God is a God of cities. Paul the Apostle put it this way in the New Testament. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are the ambassadors of the of the living God. We are representing him everywhere we go. And that's one of the reasons we've used the word city in our new name. It's because we've seen, as we've studied and prayed and dialogued together, how this incredible redemptive activity of God is constantly aimed at cities in this world. And so today I want us to see this all in kind of a fresh way and take us to a very Different, unique, and awesome passage in the book of Amos, chapter 9, at verse 11. You're going to find the words there up on the screen, and I'm going to read this passage for us. Reading out of the New King James Version. Here's what it says. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. What a vision! What a prophetic picture and a portrait of God's assignment for his people wherever they live. This has a real specific kind of challenge to us and application to us where, where we live here in Airdrie. 
And I believe that God's going to say something to us out of this passage. Amos is the prophet who wrote the words, and he, he was serving in the time of the late 700s in B.C., and uh, he was a farmer. He, he came from Tekoa uh, in the south part of Israel. He was not necessarily a trained seminary graduate, but God calls this farmer to a prophetic ministry. And he goes to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he brings to them, if you look at the book of Amos as a whole, it's a prophecy of coming judgment. It's really what it is. It's an indictment against God's people, especially those in the north. And his whole prophecy is saying up to this point, God is not okay with the way things have gone. What was going on? Well, what was happening was that the people of God in those days were getting really, really busy with their own things. They were being blessed financially. There was a lot of economic upswing in the economy. Uh, they, they just got really distracted in their lives away from God. And so they were still showing up and, and doing temple worship services, but they were neglecting the poor. That really gets zeroed in on in the book of Amos. Uh, they got into materialism, and they're beginning to dabble in other gods. And so God sends the prophet Amos to them, and he's warning them, saying, you know what, there's going to be a judgment come your way, and, and it's going to result in a captivity. And we know, of course, that this is exactly what happened, that the Assyrian army came in later and scooped up a whole bunch of people, took them out, and put them into different places. The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom for a while. And Amos' job is to warn the people of that and to get them ready so that they understand what's happening when it does happen. He's a pretty blunt prophet. <laughs> I don't know if Amos would stand long in a, in a ministry or a job as a pastor in our culture. I, I don't think he would last. You know, one of the things he says in chapter 4, you can check it out, it's really there. He calls a group of women cows. I'm like, oh man, that's politically incorrect, Amos. He calls them that, and, uh, and, he, and he indicts them for being the kind of women, I guess, that were you know, self-serving and, and manipulative and all that. And, and that's just the kind of guy he was, Amos, willing to say those things that needed to be said. And so he predicts this captivity will occur, and God's people will be away for a while. And then in chapter 9 at verse 11, he talks about restoration. And that's really what I want us to focus on today, is the restoration. I just want you to understand what happened before that. Can I remind you that by being followers of Jesus Christ, that we are released already from captivity? That we are not in bondage, we are no longer slaves to sin anymore? We've been set free, we've got our freedom. So this is not a message saying, hey, let's go back into the first eight chapters of Amos and bring a bunch of judgment on ourselves. No, that judgment has been solved through Jesus Christ. We are now living not in captivity. We are now living in restoration. And so restoration is the picture that is painted here from verse 11 on. What does restoration look like, especially for a city and for a group of people? Here's the first thing I want us to, to realize from it. It looks like presence-based worship. Presence-based worship. Amos talks about 
how God wants to restore David's fallen tabernacle. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's really hinting at presence-based worship, where you have this encounter with God that's real and powerful, and it changes your life. When I was 19 years of age, I was a brand-new believer, and uh, I, was, I was living in Vancouver Island, and, and there was about 10 other young adults like me, and we got together, and we formed a house church. We were all brand-new Christians, and we had a lot of passion for Jesus. Most of us came out of really crazy, wild, debauched backgrounds, and uh, Jesus saved us, and we knew it. And so we would have this house church thing going on, and we would meet and worship, bring out some guitars, and, you know, this was during the era of Granola and Keith Green. If you're my age, you might know what I'm talking about. And we just had these profound encounters with Jesus. You know, we would worship from 8 p.m. till 3 a.m. And he would just, his presence would just be thick on us. We'd be like, wow, we must be the only ones in the world that have encountered God like this. We did not know at all that God was working in churches and in other places. We just thought, no, probably not. It's just here. It's my journey. It was powerful. And it was presence-based worship. I would say to you, that is what God is putting his finger on. He's saying, I'm calling you back, Israel, not to just temple worship, like Solomon's temple, because it's still existing in the time of Amos, and and not just to ritualistic worship and tradition-based worship. I'm calling you back to presence-based worship. I'm going to rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. You see, David was a man after God's own heart, and he had this passion for worship. He set up the tabernacle just outside of Jerusalem, and, uh, and there was a worship center there. Some scholars believe 24-7 worship was happening there. Then the Temple of Solomon was built, and that great grand edifice was the place you gathered for worship. And over time, David's tabernacle just faded away, and the people got into their routines. God says enough of that. Enough of the routines. Enough of the shallow worship. If you look at it, it sounds a lot like Isaiah. Lip service worship. That was what was going on in the day of Amos. And so God is saying, you know, if you want to be my people, if you want to step into restoration, it's going to, it's going to result in this, that you are a people who encounter my presence on a regular basis. And that presence is so going to change your life. Then I can use you in your city. By the way, I'm sure we know this, that God does not limit himself down to buildings, right? God does not just locate himself in a, in a sanctuary made by human hands. The scriptures remind us about that. God doesn't, you know, locate and dwell in just a little building. He's so big. Where does God live? He lives in the hearts of his people. Sometimes we get building focused. This happened in Europe, right? Christianity, which was thriving at one point in time, slipped and got into a, an overt traditionalism. So now you have, you know, 500 years later, 1,000 years later, you got all these beautiful buildings in Europe that were once churches, and now they're museums and mosques and bars and art studios. What happened? They lost the whole vision that it's about encountering the presence of God in worship. You and I are called to presence-based worship. We're called to David's tabernacle type of worship. And so I also just want to encourage you to remember who you are. You are people who encounter the presence of God, and you, you, there's a real sense in which you carry the presence of God with you wherever you go. So remember that whenever you walk into a meeting this coming week, whenever you're teaching at school or you're 
on student council or you're coaching your team or you're, you're doing your sports, you, as someone who encounters the presence of God, you carry his presence with you wherever you go. Here's another thing I think that restoration points us to. It's about living a life of increase. Look at verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. That's a strange verse. And, you know, I've got it highlighted in blue in my Bible, which means for me it's very important. I've been soaking on this verse and and plumbing the depths of this verse, and I think it's telling us about an exponential increase of kingdom blessing that comes to your life during a time of restoration. But it's kind of a strange verse. I mean, the plowman overtakes the reaper. Now, I'm not a farmer, but you know, doesn't it kind of go like this? First you plow the ground, then you plant the seeds, then you water them, or the rain comes and it waters them, and they start to grow, and after a while... Um, you know, after it's grown to full crop, then you harvest it, you take it off, you reap it. And if it's grapes, then you tread out the grapes and you turn it into wine, which is mentioned in this passage. And wine is a metaphor for the kingdom of heaven. So I'm thinking, all right, this is going out of order here. The plowman will overtake the reaper and start plowing again. Are you with me? It's like advancing cycles for another harvest ahead of itself. It's accelerated blessing. And I thought, how in the world can I describe this to people? And I prayed about it, and this thought came to me. Tell the story of my upbringing. I grew up in a fisherman's home. My dad was a commercial fisherman on Lake Winnipeg in Manitoba, and, uh, you know, with boats and nets. And so I would help him. At age 13 or so, I remember going out with my dad, and it's fall season, and we're, his nets are three miles out, and, and we go out to pull the fish in, and there was a lot of fish in those nets. It would take, you know, two and a half hours maybe on the lake, you bring them in, and then my uncle would come over and say, you know what, there's a run of fish going on. Now, I didn't know that fish ran. I, I thought they swam. But apparently there was a run of fish happening, which meant there was like a whole bunch of fish ready to be caught out there in the lake. So what my dad and my uncle would do and, and other relatives, we were all sort of a family fishing business, is they would go out and set more nets. So we'd bring the fish in, we'd harvest the first batch, we'd go back out on the lake. I would watch my dad dropping the leads and anchors into the lake, stringing across there the, the, the whole net and, and sunk in the water. And then he'd say, let's go lift it. So then you'd go back to the start of the net and he would lift it and there'd be lots of fish in it. And we could go back to the beginning again and, and see again, there was more fish in it. And it got just ridiculous. So we would set more and more nets and it was kind of like the plowman overtaking the reaper. We had so much fish at times, it was like a 500% increase. And I'm, I'm, I'm 14 years old, you know, and I'm helping my dad. He paid me so well. My dad was so generous. You know, I had friends that had paper roots. I'd say, hey, how much money did you make this week? And they'd say, $3.50. And I'd say, I'm the son of a fisherman. I made like $30. They're like, no. You know, I smelled like fish, but that was a smell of money to me. I was like, <laughs> Yeah. This is good. This is good. I think this passage is saying to us that there are seasons in the life of restored people when the plowman overtakes the reaper. And it's God, God's like, are you ready for more? I'm going to bless you again and again. And it's going to multiply. There can be this kind of blessing in your life as you are a presence-based worshiper of God. 
you can expect that there will be phenomenal increase in your life, like compounding blessings. It happened in the Bible. I mean, in the book of Nehemiah, it tells us that he went to the broken-down city of Jerusalem. He was in Persia, and with resources from a pagan king, they rebuilt the walls in 52 days. 52 days restoring the walls of ancient Jerusalem. That is what we're talking about. That's accelerated blessing. So I'm just thinking to myself, how is God going to pour his favor out on this region? What will that look like? Maybe it'll look like the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descended on those people in that upper room and tongues of fire were on their head. They went out and and some fisherman named Peter preaches and 3,000 people enter the kingdom that day and get baptized. Maybe it's like the book of Acts chapter 19 when Paul was preaching and, and then the people of Ephesus turn. They turn to Jesus and they burn their sorcery scrolls in the city square and a great revival breaks out in that city. Or maybe it's like Nineveh. Nineveh, right? Jonah the prophet went to Nineveh and, and he finally got there. He, he had a little detour for a while, but he, he arrived. He got to Nineveh, did what he was told to do. He preaches. What happens? The whole city repents. Are you, did you hear that? The whole city repents and turns to God. They even put sort of sackcloth on their animals and had them join in the repentance. I don't know why, but they did it. They probably wanted to make sure God was really taking them seriously. Nineveh repents and comes to God. Is it possible that a whole city can turn to God? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Is it possible that this city that we live in, this region, can come to God in crazy awesome ways? Absolutely. I, I believe that the Spirit of God is preparing us for a season of accelerated blessing. And that we will see all kinds of people come into the kingdom. It's not just our church, it's all, it's all the churches. I was meeting with a pastor this week from another church. He was telling me about their incredible harvest of souls going on. People coming to meet Jesus. They've got so many new believers in small groups. They're just, it's unbelievable what's going on. I celebrated that with him. God is working in so many awesome ways here in our city. It can happen to you individually. God wants to see something happen in your life that shows you that the plowman is overtaking the reaper. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. This is out of Passion Translation. It says it so well. It says this. Yes, God is more than ready to overwhelm you with every form of grace so that you will have more than enough of everything every moment and in every way. He will make you overflow with abundance in every good thing you do. This generous God who supplies abundant seed for the farmer, which becomes bread for our meals, is even more extravagant toward you. First, he supplies every seed, every need, plus more. Then he multiplies the seed as you sow it, so that the harvest of your generosity will grow. Wow. So God is willing to bless us in accelerated ways if we are willing to be a conduit of his blessing. This is why tithing is so awesome. In tithing, we get under this. God says, if you tithe, I will open up the windows of heaven, and I will pour out such a great blessing. You won't even have room enough for it. I I will protect your crops from being devoured by pests. I'll I'll just make sure that everything that happens to you is filtered through my hands. But when we're not tithing, of course, we can't get under that. We We can't receive that protection from God. 
And really, that's a trust issue with us, right? Tithing is really a trust issue. It's not a money issue. It's will I really trust God to do those things that he said he would do? When God blesses us, I think we all know this is not just for us. We're not the containers of the blessing of God. We're the conduit of the blessing of God. The blessing flows through us. We get blessed. We enjoy it. And we release more and more through our generosity. And it makes a difference in the city that we live. Some of you are on the verge of a breakthrough here. No doubt. And it's a matter of stepping forward by faith and saying, Okay, God, this is my moment. This is the time in my life when I'm believing you for the plowman overtaking the reaper. I'm believing you for a season and a cycle that is exponentially proof of your goodness in my life. So, God, I'm leaning into this. And some of you have been praying for these things to happen in your business or in your family for maybe months. And I want to encourage you to hang on and and keep persevering until that breakthrough comes. And it's really a matter of how we view the promises of God. Do we really, really believe the promises of God? You say, well, of course we do. We're, we're, we're Christians. We go to church. <laughs> Have I asked a Christian, do you believe the promises of God? They go, well, yeah, because I'm a Christian and it's in the book, and so I have to. And so, yes, I believe the promises of God. And I say to them, which one are you believing God for right now? Oh, you see, it's easy to generalize the promises of God and say, yeah, I believe in the promises of God. But which one are we leaning into with God and believing for ourselves right now? It might be for you that you're believing God for financial strength in your life. There's that promise that says, you know, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ. You can go to God and say, hey, God, there's that verse. There's a promise there. Is that like just for New Testament people back in the days of Paul? Or is that like for me? And God will say to you, that's for you too. My promises are irrevocable. So I can trust that God? Yes, you can. I will supply all your needs all the time. Thank you. There's this other promise in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the promise of healing. It says in Isaiah 53 that by his stripes we are healed. It doesn't say we can be healed or we should be healed or we might be healed. It says by his stripes we are healed. And if you need healing in your life, you can go to God and you can say, Hey God, it says in Isaiah 53 that by his stripes, the stripes of Jesus, his suffering, we're healed. Is that still true or is that like an Old Testament thing? And God will say to you, well, that promise is still standing. It's irrevocable. It's for you. You can step into that. You can claim that for yourself. And I think that some of us just need to be encouraged in this area. And I'm going to read to you a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 20. Just stay with me as we, as we do this one together. Let me read it for you first. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. I want you to say this verse with me with some faith in it. Let's say it together. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. How many promises of God are yes and amen? All of them. Not some of them. All of them. Have any of them faded away and become irrelevant? No. All the promises of God in him are yes and amen. And they work themselves out through our lives. And promises do have conditions. You meet the conditions, you receive the promise. 
And I think that some of you are on the verge of substantial breakthrough in this area. You've been leaning in. You've been faithful. You've been, you've been excited about what God's about to do in your life. You're, you're holding the line. You're persevering. And God is pleased with your heart. This is about living a life of increase. Maybe you need to radically declare some promises of God over you. I do that very regularly. I'm praying that for my children and the next generation. I'm already, I'm already praying God's favor on five generations that come after me. I'm praying that every one of them knows God, loves God, serves God, fulfills God's purpose in their life. It's a promise that we can lay hold of. So we've got to see what God has been showing us in this whole series here and, and what he's calling us to because he's mandated us as kingdom people to bring good news to our city in a way that brokenness gets restored. And I just want to highlight for you this verse again in chapter 9, verse 14. The prophet Amos says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. We're to rebuild broken cities. It's part of the gospel. And I think sometimes in Christian circles, there's some theology that gets in the way from letting that happen. I call it bad theology. Bad theology that over the years has kind of choked out the thrust of the gospel in some places and in some people groups. Here's one of the examples of that, some bad theology related to the relationship between the believer and the world. Here's the first one. We should retreat from the world. We should pull out of the world. The world's bad. The world's an unholy place. The world's full of darkness. So as Christians, let's just step out of the world. Well, that's not really the biblical teaching that we want to hold on to. Yes, we're not supposed to be worldly, but we're to be salt and light. We're to penetrate the world and illuminate the world, right? Here's another bit of bad theology. Let it burn. Let it burn. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Our country's going to pot, literally. <laughs> Let it burn. What, what do we care? We're saved. We're safe. Well, we have let it burn attitude, and we're going against the whole manifesto of Jesus, which is now put into our hands. We're to go to the prisoners in darkness. We're to be the voice of hope in a lost generation. We're to be the ones who invite people to a, an incredible, awesome, abundant life. Let it burn doesn't work. How about this one? Do good things, but be quiet. Do good things, but, but don't talk to people about Jesus. It's kind of the social gospel movement, which we don't use that term anymore, but it's got... It's got some impact still going around in our times. This is the idea that if we just go out and do social justice and compassion and care, that's enough. We don't have to say anything about Jesus. Well, we should be doing the social justice. We should be taking care of the poor. The prophet Amos indicts a whole generation at his time for not caring for the poor and the widows and those who are destitute. It is part of the gospel to do the social need thing and to be a solution and to bring hope to people and to minister to their physical needs. It is. But we shouldn't keep our mouths closed. Are you with me? You shouldn't keep your mouths closed. It's like that famous erroneous statement from St. Francis of Assisi who said, 
500 years ago, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Francis, I love you, dude. So many good things happen to you. Off base, buddy. You've got to use words. The kingdom is advancing because some words are being spoken. Or how about this bad theology? Preach only about heaven and hell and don't do anything with poor people. There are some current culture preachers advocating that and they're amping up. Just tell them about heaven and hell, but don't get into social efforts. Don't get into medical stuff. Don't get into relief ministries. No. What did Jesus say in the parable of the Samaritan? You see someone broken by the side of the road? You go and do likewise. You go and care for them. You put oil in their wounds. You bind them up. You put them on your donkey, and you get them to the inn, right? Can we say something about the gospel? It's both and. It's proclamation, and it's compassion. We cannot separate that. Sometimes agencies do that because... They feel they have to, and I understand that they've got to get into tricky countries at times, and sometimes you come in through the door of compassion, and you need to. It's the only door that will open to you, but you must also bring the gospel, and you must do proclamation. Both are essential. The gospel is good news. If nobody hears it, they're still lost. And so let's not get confused on these things. It's not about retreat from the world. It's about penetration. It's not let it burn but it's let's change things. Let's be world changers in our own community. It's not just do good things, but let's announce greater things. We are called to rebuild broken people in the name of Jesus. And it all matters. It matters what's happening in our city socially. It matters what's happening in our city, in, in people's lives, the pressure that they live under, the strain that's on families. All of that is included in our mission and ministry to them, and we do it in the name of Jesus. Can I remind us all that there's only one name under heaven given to men by which they may be saved? There's only one name. There's not two names. There's only one pathway that leads to God. You say there's a lot of world religions. Yep, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to him, to God. It's through Jesus Christ. It's through the Jesus Christ who came and lived amongst us, showing us the love of the Father, sacrificed his life on the cross for our sins, was, was crucified, buried, and rose from the grave by the power of God's Spirit. And this Jesus we proclaim. We proclaim him. He is the message. He's the message. He's the whole point of it all, that redemption happens through him. And so, friends, we're called to be kingdom restoration specialists. And we're not alone in this. I want to read you Psalm 127. Worship team, you can join me up here. Psalm 127, verse 1, it says this, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Now, I want you to picture that. Is the Lord standing watch over our city? I believe he is. We've invited him to do so. At our revival night seven days ago, we prayed that God would intervene in our city, that he would advance his gospel in our city, that he would pour his presence out upon our city. The Lord is watching over our city. So what we're doing is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not pretend. And what kind of heart does this call from me when I realize that into our lives goes the mission. 
the manifesto, the mandate to be a people who restore what is broken. What kind of efforts will this pull me into? If I want to see the plowman overtake the reaper in my own city, that will be seen because of great breakthroughs. And so I better be praying for it. I don't know if you realize this or not, but if you're wondering who is God sent to do all this, the answer is you and me. We are the restoration team. Friends, I believe that we're seeing early signs of great breakthrough in our city. I believe that God wants this place, this region, to flourish economically. I believe that He wants that to occur so that people will be moving here. You ask them, why did you come? They'll say, because I've heard of the blessing of living in Airdrie. That this is an unusual place where the favor of God is upon people. And so we're praying these days. We're praying bold prayers. We're praying that all the psychics in Airdrie would encounter the one spirit that will change their life for good forever, the Holy Spirit of God. We're praying for all those who are in the occult. We're praying that poverty and financial brokenness is dismantled from people's lives in this region. We're praying that fear and stress and worry will be replaced with kingdom peace. We're praying that teenagers will not go into a season of gender confusion, wondering, am I this or that? But they'll know that they're image bearers of God, image bearers of God, men and women, made to reflect His image, and they understand their identity. We're praying that there'll be a massive turning to God that people will be so touched in their hearts, like in the city of Nineveh, like in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that they will say to you, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? This is what we're believing God. These are the moments that we're living into. You are the carrier of the presence of God wherever you go. You're the voice of hope. You're the hands of Jesus. You reflect his heart in every encounter you have with people. Let's stand together. All right, we're going to pray. And then we're going to be released. I want to say this to you. The best work of the church happens not in here, but out there. Do you believe that? Do we need here? Yes. We need encouragement. We need to encounter the presence, but we must go out. And I want to remind you that you're going out with the presence of Jesus with you and on you. He loves you. If you've been restored by him, you are now a restoration specialist. And our city is waiting for you. So, Father, I ask in the name of Jesus, the only name, the great name above all names, that you would ignite our faith that you would open up our eyes to see where we are to reach, where we are to touch, where we are to listen, who we are to become in these great days of preparation. I pray that you bless all the Christian school teachers in our congregation and our city. In these days of great challenge in education, oh God, give them wisdom, give them boldness, 
Give them your anointing to be a voice at the right time in the right moment. Pray for our business people. God, would you just give them that season of the plowman overtaking the reaper? Would you just accelerate the work of their hands? Thank you, God, for all the business people of our church, for the sacrifices they make, for the tough decisions they have to do. Oh, God, give them encouragement today and wisdom and bless them. For the rest of us, Lord, in our kingdom roles in life, we're asking you, Lord, to do a deeper work in our hearts so that we can represent you well, our living Savior. Lord, use me to bless others, to set captives free. We pray all this in the powerful, awesome name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen.